0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25, for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 5th of October. And it is weather only suitable for ducks. And even then, you'd feel bad putting them out in it. That's a shambles of a day. Um, I missed this the other day. Um, I'm not sure how. But I saw it this morning. Uh, Francis Lee passed away on Monday. And... He is one of the great English players of the 60s and 70s and somebody who's sort of been forgotten a little bit through time. Now, I know yesterday was Nostalgia Day, but you're just going to have to indulge me on this one. Um, I grew up in a house with a Manchester City fan. My stepfather is a Manchester City fan all his life. And I would imagine, though I've never actually asked them, I would imagine a big part of why is Francis Lee, Colin Bell, and Mike Summerby, who were City's kind of three best players back in the late 60s, early 70s, when City had uh, a period of good success. Francis Lee and Colin Bell in particular were arguably the two best city players of all time up until, you know, the likes of Aguero and David Silva arrived. I would imagine the majority of the plastic city fans who've come along in recent years with the success of Guardiola have no idea who Francis Lee or Colin Bell are. And it's such a shame that these great players are, are being forgotten about by many. Now, most City fans will know. And the older City fans will obviously know. But Franny Lee was such a unique player. Short, heavy set, lightning fast over 10 yards. Not the best beyond that, but lightning fast over 10 yards. Came through the academy at Bolton made his professional debut there at 16, spent eight years playing for Bolton as a senior player before moving on to Manchester City in 1967. And he was purchased for a club record fee of £60,000, which is a significant amount of money back then. Uh, Worth remembering that City had not long been promoted from the championship or well, what we call the championship now the second division back then. They were promoted in 1966 from the second division into the top flight and Mike Summerby is the only one of the three, of the big three, who was at City for that season. Uh, he joined in 65 from Swindon who were also in the second division. He'd come through the Swindon Academy. Obviously his son, Nicky Summer- Summerby, played in the Premier League uh, for Swindon and others um, and Man City. Uh, but Mike Summerby was the first to come in. Colin Bell arrives in 66. Colin Bell, I would say sort of the, the Brian Robson, Stephen Gerrard of his era. Immense athlete, wonderful technical ability, well built powerful motor box to box type of player and then lee arrives in 67 like i said for uh, for si- 60,000 pounds and in that first season city win the league city win the top flight and it's an incredible achievement considering where they had been only a couple of years beforehand it was their first title since 1937. They finished two points ahead of Manchester United, two points for a win back then. They won 26 games, drew six, lost 10, scored 86 goals and conceded 43. And Colin Bell and Francis Lee were the standout players for them uh, in that in that season. Um, this would kind of spark a period of success for City. They won the FA Cup in 1969. They beat Leicester City 1-0, a goal from Neil Young, not the musician, um, another all-time great City player. And when you look at some of the names here, people like Tony Buck, legend at City, Mike Doyle, Alan Oaks, Tony Coleman, these are players that played massive roles for City over the years. They followed that up in 1970 by winning a cup double. So they beat West Bromwich Albion 2-1 in the League Cup final. Um, Jeff Astley, Baggies legend, put West Brom one up on five minutes. Mike Doyle equalizes on 60 and Glyn Pardew scores the winner in the 102nd minute. Uh, Glyn Pardew, for those who don't know, is City's youngest ever appearance maker. He was only 16 when he made his first team debut. Now, considering that was in 1962, that's an amazing achievement. And here we are now, 61 years later, uh, Glyn Pardew has passed away three years ago, and still nobody has beaten uh, his record. In that same year, they beat Gornik Zabazre, whose name I've butchered, Zab... Zabazre? 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 They beat them 2-1 in the European Cup Winners Cup Final to bring the first ever piece of European silverware to Manchester City. And obviously they've gone on to win the Champions League last season. They've won the Super Cup this season. But the last piece of European silverware they'd won before last season was in 1970, that Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, Young scored the opener. Francis Lee scored a penalty on 43 minutes. And Oslislo scores on 68 to give Gornick a bit of hope. But in the end... In the end, City would go on to win the game. Uh, This game was played in Vienna, only in attendance of 8,000 people at the final. Uh, Which, you know, I mean, people didn't travel as much for games back then, I I assume. Uh, Mike Summerby actually missed that final. Uh, He was injured. I think he was actually on the bench, but didn't play. Uh, Mike Doyle got injured early in that final. Ian Boyer came on, so that was the only sub they could make. Oh no, they could make two at the time, wasn't it? But anyway, Mike Somerby didn't come on. But Lee Bell and Somerby, when I was a kid, uh, my stepfather had a a, a VHS of Lee Bell and Somerby. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're a football fan, and first and foremost, I, I see myself as a football fan before even being a Liverpool fan. And... I I must have watched that thing endlessly. I'd say I must have watched it 20 times because I was always fascinated by football of the past. Uh, My grandfather had George Best VHS and Manchester United VHSs, the Busby Babes and stuff like that. And I watched them endlessly as well whenever I was up at his house because I just had this fascination with the football of the past. And I still do. I still have that fascination. Now, then, which would have been the late eighties, early nineties, my fascination was with the sixties and seventies and even the fifties. If you could find anything now, I, I didn't have that awareness to of where to find. I was, I was a child, but I would watch them endlessly. Now it's more about the eighties and the nineties for me, uh, because that's the era I grew up in. And I suppose that's where your, foremost footballing loves are are formed. Um, But Francis Lee played for City until 1974, and then he moved on to join Derby County. And there was quite a bit of controversy over the move. Uh, He was looking for a new contract. City weren't willing to give him that contract. And he moved on to a rival who were seen as a team that could win the title. And obviously, uh, at the time, Derby had won the title under Brian Clough in 72. Clough had left in controversial uh, circumstances, and Derby would go on to win the title in Francis Lee's first year there. So it's quite unusual for a player to join a club, win a league title, and then multiple years later, joined another club and win a league title again in the first year. I know Angolo Kante did it, but he did it kind of in back to back years. Um, there was no, there was no kind of dip or ending in between, no aging in between. Uh, he played 27 times for England, scored 10 goals. He held the record for the most goals in Manchester derbies with 10. Uh, until Wayne Rooney passed it in 2013. He set a record for the number of penalties scored in a season, which 15 in 1971-72, scored 35 goals that season. He was viewed by many as a diver who would, you know, go over very easy to win a penalty. He won a substantial amount of those penalties himself. But, as I said earlier, he had this very unique build, similar to Puskas, short, overweight, but he was rapid across those first few steps. And if he got that little run on you, it was very hard to stop him. He was a bit like throwing a bowling ball at Skittles and if players would bounce off him. He'd bounce off them. And yeah, sometimes he hit the floor a little bit too easy, but oftentimes or most times it was legitimate fouls. Um, Obviously, he would go on to buy Manchester City in the 90s. uh, Bought the club from Peter Swales. Didn't have the most successful spell, shall we say, as city owner. And held on to the club until 2007. Sold it to Taksin Shinowatra, the former was he former prime minister of Thailand who then got caught up in like embezzlement and corruption things. And then the the club got sold again to Abu Dhabi. And now we find ourselves where we are now. Um, He was also a noted horse trainer and that's one of the avenues in which he made a successful amount of money. Um, He trained horses for 12 years and had 181 winners between Britain and Ireland, which is very, very impressive. He died of cancer on Monday, at the age of 79. And I would hope that at some point, somebody at Manchester City sees fit to properly honour him and Colin Bell and Mike Summerby with the statue that they deserve we've had a lot of talk of you know new statues and current players and former players getting you know memorial things at City Stadium there is a a statue of Colin Bell um, outside the stadium I believe I could be wrong I think there is oh I'm, I'm terribly sorry Manchester City commissioned Bell, Lee and Summerby statue. So City are ahead of the game here. Fair play. Don't need to criticise them on that. Uh, Colin Bell passed away in 2021. Uh, Mike Summerby is the remaining member of that group. And he is 80 years of age. And so hopefully he's living a good life. Uh, whatever it is he does these days. But yeah, Lee Bell and Summerby, for me, growing up, just they've always been in my mind because of that VHS, because of my stepfather of being a City fan. And so when I saw the news today, I was quite, quite saddened by it um, because it's a little bit of your childhood that passes on. So now I want to find that. I assume it's on DVD at this point. Lee Bell and me. Let's see if we can find it on Amazon. Uh, no, no. There is a the VHS tape. The actual exact VHS tape is here, but it's unavailable. Um, well, that's an awful shame. I would have just bought it on VHS just to have it. There is a. Uh, a printed signed autograph picture of the three of them. But it's not what I want. So, Um, Anyway, yeah. Right, uh, on with today's show then. And last night we had Champions League action. And ladies and gentlemen, it is now official, Brendan Rodgers is the worst manager in the history of the world. Or... The Champions League or the Champions League for managers who've managed 20 games or more. But I'm going to go within the history of the world. Uh, he has won two of his 20 matches in the Champions League. That is an absolute scandal that anybody would allow this man to continue to manage in this competition. Celtic beaten 2 1 at home by Lazio. Kyogo put them one up on 12 minutes. The senior equalized on. 29 and then a late 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 pedro goal 95 minutes as celtic snatched defeat from the jaws of a draw um really disappointing really really disappointing uh porto one barcelona sorry porto nil barcelona one ferran torres with the only goal just before half time gavi sent off in stoppage time rb leipzig one manchester city 3 Phil Foden put United one or put City one up. Did I say United it is Manchester City? Foden put City one nil up on twenty-five. Luisa Penda, who's really, really impressed me so far this season, scoring on 48 to tie things up. And it looked like City were gonna huff and puff and fail to blow the house down again, but Julian Alvarez on eighty-four minutes. What a player he's developing into for them. Always coming up with important goals. And then Julian Doku or Jeremy Doku, rather, in stoppage time to give City a 3-1 victory, which was fully deserved. And in fairness, I think they would have been more annoyed had they dropped points in this than they were about losing to Wolves at the weekend, because they were more dominant in this one than they were at the weekend. Uh, Borussia Dortmund, nil. AC Milan, nil. Red Star, Belgrade 2, Young Boys 2. Red Star went 1-0 up through Njai. Greenwich and Itten put Young Boys 2-1 up, but Bukhari with a late equaliser rescuing a point for Red Star. Royal Antwerp 2, Shakhtar Dines 3. Uh, Muja put Antwerp 1 up, Belekwisha like put them 2 up, into half time looking comfortable at home straight after the ba- the break sikhan scores he scores that then um Rakitikki, Rakitikki scores on 71 and then sikhan gets the winner on 76 great win for Shakhtar away from home especially having been 2-0 down at half time atletico madrid 2 or sorry atletico madrid 3 or 2 i can't read today Uh, Mario Hermoso scored an own goal to put Feyenoord 1-up. Then David Hanko scored to put Feyenoord 2-up. I'm an idiot, that's not what happened. Alvaro Morata scored to equalise after the own goal. Then Hanko scored and Feyenoord went 2-1-up. Griezmann scored just before the break to make it 2-2 and then Alvaro Morata made it 3-2 just after the break. And Atleti clung on for a win. Uh, They had less than half the shots, less than half the shots on target, less possession. They're fine or are a high possession team, but it doesn't seem like it was the most convincing of Atleti performances, shall we say. On to the big one then. I said they could win. People scoffed and said they were going to finish bottom of the group. And I told them they were being foolish and they wouldn't listen. Newcastle United 4, Paris Saint-Germain 1. Now, let's get this out of the way straight away. PSG were garbage last night. Utter, utter garbage. And it's entirely Luis Enrique's fault. Because he decided, knowing Newcastle would play 4-3-3, He decided to play 4-2-4 and allow his team to be completely overrun in midfield. Now, with that said, Usman Dembele misses two really good chances. Nick Pope made a pretty good save from Colomuani, I believe. Warren Zaire Emery was the more impressive of the two PSG midfielders. Ougart had a bad game, but he wasn't the only. Like... uh, Pretty much everybody, bar Warren Zaire Emery, had a bad game for PSG. So, let's get started then with the goals. Um, The first one is a, a catastrophic error by Marquinhos. He has the ball on his own edge, in his own box. He has plenty of time to pump it down the field, and he tries to play a clever pass into midfield. Gamerish cuts it out, heads it forward to Isaac. His first time shot is saved by Donnarumma. Almiron follows up and it's an absolutely outrageous finish. It's a very, very good goal by Miguel Almiron. By the way, Newcastle look much better kit-wise with the white shorts and white socks. And I've thought of this for years. And I think Juventus are the same. I think the black and white striped shirt looks better with white shorts and white socks. And I wondered for years why Newcastle didn't do it. Is it. Is that their European look? Is that what that is? Because I think it's the same with Juve. But other than that, I can't understand why they wouldn't have worn their usual black. I assume it's just that's their European uh, kit. Um, second goal Donnarumma makes a great save the ball cannons around a bit Gmarish lofts it to the back post Dan Byrne rises like a salmon gets a fairly powerful header on it it looks like Donnarumma saves it but upon checking his watch, the referee gets the notification. Goal given. 2-0. And the tune fully deserving of their 2-0 lead. Fully deserving. Newcastle were all over them. Again, PSG had some half chances. But Newcastle were so, so good in that early phase of the game. They made a three just after half time and it's Sean Longstaff and this is a goal he'll he'll never forget. He's a, a local lad who's had some real trials and tribulations there. you remember he broke through what four years ago five years ago maybe and looked exceptional looked like a player who was destined for big things and then he got Steve Bruce. And having once been the target of a 40 million pound bid from Manchester United, I believe that was 2020, maybe? 2019. 2019, 2020. around then. United bid 40 million from Newcastle wanted more. A bid maybe bid 30 and Newcastle wanted 40. Either way. He then got Steve Bruce. And it looked like his Newcastle career was over, but massive credit to Eddie Howe. He has completely turned things around with um, with Longstaff. And he's he's such an important player for them now. It's a shame that his brother hasn't had the same turnaround. Um, He's currently a free agent. I think he's still recovering from an ACL tear, which was a while ago, Um, I believe, Last December, Newcastle released him, which was really harsh. Like he got sent out on loan to Colchester, tore his ACL, and then Toon released him in the summer, like six months later. Like you should have, they, they should have given him an extra year's contract. That would have been the fair thing to do. I'm sure they are looking after him and taking care of his his rehabilitation, um, but he should have been kept for another year. On on a cheap contract. Like he, he's not going to have been earning big money. Um, but I hope that Manny Longstaff gets his career back on track the way his brother has. Uh, PSG would pull one back on 56 minutes. Uh, Lucas Hernandez off a really nice ball by Warren Zaire Emery. And it looked like 3 1 was going to be it. There was a couple of chances here, there and everywhere. Both sides, Mbappe, who'd been garbage, had a couple of late chances, didn't take either of them. And then Fabian Schär decided that because he's Fabian Schär and he can only score incredible goals, he was going to score an incredible goal. He does brilliantly to win the ball back in midfield, plays the 1-2 with Murphy, moves on to it, and while falling over, lashes it into the top corner. It is a sensational goal, an absolutely sensational goal, and no less than Newcastle deserved. They were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant last night. And PSG have a lot of thinking to do. Uh, I don't think that manager is very good. I said that ages ago on this podcast. I said it before they hired him. I said it when he was linked to Chelsea. I don't like Luis Enrique as a manager. He had success with Messi, Suarez and Neymar, who are the greatest front three ever put together. He also had Busquets and Iniesta in that team, which is two-thirds of the best three-man midfield the game has ever seen. I don't know that winning the Champions League once with that group is all that impressive. I know he won a couple of league titles, but let's not forget Real won the Champions League before them and then ran off three in a row after them. Do we do we think they underachieved maybe a little bit with considering the talent? Considering that front three, Lionel Messi, Luis Suarez, and Neymar before he went into semi-retirement. I think one Champions League might be underachieving. Anyway, in the groups, we went through groups A to D yesterday, didn't we? If not, Bayern, Galatasaray, Copenhagen, United in Group A, Lens, Arsenal, Sevilla and PSV in Group B, Real, Napoli, Braga and Berlin in Group C, Real Sociedad, Inter, Red Bull Salzburg and Benfica in Group D. In Group E, Atletico Madrid are top on goal difference from Lazio. Then a point behind is Feyenoord. And coming up last is Celtic, who now play Atletico Madrid twice. So, unlikely to be points incoming. Um, Group F, Newcastle are top. Then PSG then Milan, and then Dortmund. And two obviously have Dortmund twice now. And I fancy them to take four points, which will mean that a point at home to Milan might be enough to get them through. If not, a win at home to Milan will be enough to get them through. In Group G, it's Manchester City, then Leipzig, Young Boys, and Red Star in Truth City will walk that group. Uh, Barcelona, Porto, Shakhtar and Royal Antwerp in group H. We have Europa League and Europa Conference League tonight. Uh lots of games. 8 Europa League games kicking off at 7 uh, sorry 5:45. Those are Backa Topola, Aris Lamasol, sorry at Topola versus Olympiacos, Aris Lamasol versus Rangers, AK Athens versus Ajax which should be a good one. Uh, Real Betis versus Sparta Prague. Sporting against um, Atalanta, which I think is going to be a great game. Rakow against Sturm Graz. Freiburg against West Ham should be a decent one. And then Marseille versus Brighton in what is kind of a must-win game for Brighton after the poor start they made in the competition. Then at 8pm, we get Slavia Prague versus Sheriff Tiraspol. Hacken versus Quarabeg, Roma against Cervet, Villarreal against Rennes, Toulouse against Last, Maccabi Haifa against Panathinaikos, Molde against Bayer Leverkusen, and Liverpool versus Union Saint-Gelos. So, a lot of good games in the Europa League today. I would say AK against uh, Ajax, Sporting Atalanta, Atlanta, Freiburg-West Ham, Marseille, Brighton are all very, very, very watchable. And then you get Villarreal versus uh, Rennes and Molde versus Leverkusen. The the early games are better than the late games in the Europa League today. I think they're actually considerably better. But, you know, it is what it is. Europa Conference League then, Uh, we currently have a game ongoing Astana and Victoria Plizen are at half time as I speak. Uh, Olimpija and Slovan Bratislava kick off at quarter to six, as do Besiktas Lugano, Bodo Glimt against Club Bruges, Brioblick against Zoria Luhansk, Ghent against Maccabi Tel Aviv, Balkani against Dinamo Zagreb, and the Faro team, whose name I can't say, against Lille. So as soon as I get done here, I'm going to stick on Astana against Victoria Plissom, because that's what's available to me. Um, Then there are the 8pm kickoffs, Aberdeen against HJK, Aston Villa against Zerinsky. massive game for Villa after their poor first first result. Uh, At home as well, first time there's been European football at Villa Park in, in quite a while, so the crowd should be up to it. Fiorentina against Ferenc Varos, AZ Alkmaar against Legio Warsaw, Kukuriki against Genk, Nordljand against Ludo P.A.O.K. against Eintracht Frankfurt and Spartak Tornava against Fenerbahce. So lots and lots of football today. Um, there are a couple of really watchable ones. Bodo Glimt versus Club Brew should be interesting. I, I think I might watch... I might put Besiktas versus Lugano on the computer screen when I watch one of the the early games because I want to see how Alex Oxlade Chamberlain looks. Um, obviously, I have to work for the Liverpool game, so I won't be watching any of the other games. But I might throw Aston Villa on just just you know because Aston Villa it's it, it's important that they're back in Europe. It's important to me anyway. Um, right we'll take a break when we come back I think we've only got two questions and we'll do the news and the gossip so I will see you in a sec right welcome back so we have two questions this week they're from Isaac Gilding the first one your point about Haaland having truly dreadful games while being a great player got me thinking who else would you class as a great or at least very very good player but when they had a stinker, it was truly awful to the point of being a hindrance. Mesut also came to mind for me. That's a really good shout. Like, I love Mesut Osel. He's one of my favourite players in the last 20 years. He's one of the best passers of the ball we've ever seen. He's a playmaking genius. And he had a lovely style about how he played. But he had a tendency, particularly at Arsenal, less so at Werder and Real, but at Arsenal, he had a tendency where he could just drift out of games if he wasn't getting the ball and not sh- not show for the ball, not put in the effort off-ball, not do his defensive work. I think that's ultimately what caused the rift between him and Arteta. So Mesut definitely won. Um... Didier Drogba, there were just games where Didier Drogba left his first touch at home and the ball would careen off him in unusual ways and he'd just get entirely fed up. Yaya Toure, similar to Ozil, if he wasn't involved in the game, Yaya would drift through games and Yaya was so good that he could drift through a game for 88 minutes, turn it on for two minutes, score one and make one, and City would win the game. But there were other games where he wouldn't turn it on and City would be playing with 10 men. Um, Oh, there's a bunch of others. Like, there are there's a lot of defenders who are like this, who just can have a poor game. Like Mats Hummels is like this. When Mats Hummels has a bad game, he is actively playing against his own team because his bad is really bad. Even when he was at his very best, when he was you know, winning a World Cup and winning Champions Leagues and and doing all the things that Mats Hummels has done over the years, when he was bad, he was really, really bad. (laughs) Really, really bad. Um, I think Casemiro can be a little bit... Not anymore, because he's sort of established a a really solid baseline performance, where at worst he's going to be a 6 out of 10. Now, he might get himself sent off, which can be a hindrance in itself, but early Casemiro. Like the first few years at Real could just be a complete liability if things weren't going his way and he'd get all up all up in his own head and just disappear out of games or he'd just boot somebody and he'd just start giving away free kicks. Amazingly, he's had more red cards for United than he had in his entire time at Real. And considering he used to commit 14 fouls a game at Real, that's very strange. Uh, I don't, regard this person as a great player. Uh, Certainly don't even regard him as a very good defender. Uh, But Sergio Ramos, I mean, when Ramos had a bad game, it was horrific. Like proper car crash defending. Because Ramos was never a great defender. He was a very good footballer. I wouldn't say a great footballer, but a very good footballer, a great leader, and a great mentality, a great big game player. But there'd just be times where you'd wonder had he been out the night before. Because he'd be absolutely all over the place, and he'd be lethargic and error-prone, and even the footballing side of things would struggle, or would be a struggle for him, let alone the defensive side. So, Ramos is definitely up there. Um, Who else? Who else? Who else? I mean, Stan Collymore, not a great player, but a very, very good player. But again, a complete hindrance if it wasn't clicking for him. Go and watch his second season Liverpool. There's a bunch of games there where he he might as well... It would have been better if he'd been sent off and they could have played with 10 rather than having him there. Much of his time at Villa was the same. Now, San had mental health issues, which contributed to that. But, you know, the question is the question. Um, Second question. Jude Bellingham has been getting insanely hyped by everyone this season. What have you made of his form? A big factor in how well Jude has done is that he has little to no defensive responsibility in the Real team as currently constituted. Um, oftentimes they're playing a, a diamond or a 3-1 with him as a 10 behind a front two of Rodrigo and Vinicius, who are wingers, or in Rodrigo's case, a second striker, but also a winger. And they're playing quite wide, which means Jude is almost playing like a false nine type. Now, he's playing really well. He's scoring big, important goals for them. And he's turning up in the big moments when they need him. So I think he warrants the hype. But he, he's definitely got, you know, a, basically a free role here where he's not been asked to do the, the defensive side of the midfield job. Um, Valverde and and Chiuameni and Camavinga or Modric or Cruz, they're taking care of all of that and he's just being allowed to attack. and He is pressing centre-backs and doing that side of it but pressing is an offensive action, not a defensive action. You're pressing to win the ball high up the pitch. Counter-pressing I suppose. To win the ball high up the pitch in order to launch that counter-attack and, and have an unsettled defence to transition against. Um, he's doing that well, but again, he's he's not been asked to track runners. He's not been asked to block off passing lanes, or you know, do the defensive side of things the way he would have at Dortmund. So I think he's been excellent, but the role is is benefiting him hugely, and I I wonder is that his long term role there because obviously everybody assumes they'll get Mbappe in the summer. Um they're also apparently looking at Victor Osman, according to some reports I saw. So if they were to get both of them, then Vinny goes right wing, Valverde plays left wing. Sorry, Vinny goes left wing, Valverde plays kind of right wing, but tucked in. Um And Jude is going to have to play in the midfield too with many, which puts Camavinga at left back. And that's outrageously strong. You've got one of the best goalkeepers in the world then behind that. You've got Alaba, you've got Militao. I would still like an attacking right back, an an Ashraf Hakimi type. Maybe Jeremy Frimpong. Maybe. I don't know if, if Frimpong and Kamaving as your fullbacks is the ideal, but it wouldn't be bad hakimi would be ideal if they could somehow get him back but they're not going to be able to afford awesome on top of what they'd have to pay signing fees etc for for uh mbappe and psg won't do business with them on on hakimi so maybe maybe someone like jeremy Frimpong. um ideally i'd like an upgraded center back as well but like if I was them, but you can't do everything in one summer. Uh, So that is the end of our questions. On to the news. Now, the 2030 World Cup is to be held in six countries across three continents. So Spain, Portugal, and Morocco are the co-hosts, and they've all been granted automatic qualification. And we knew this was the likely outcome. Spain, Portugal, Morocco. It's one more country than I'd like to have involved, but geographically it makes sense. The you know Morocco and Spain are very, very close. And obviously Portugal and Spain are, are connected. So I don't mind I don't mind that part of it. The other side of it though is that to celebrate the one hundred years since the first World Cup they are going to hold the first three games of the tournament in uruguay argentina and paraguay now i i get it but i don't get it why not just hold the world cup in south america like why not give the world cup to uruguay and argentina and paraguay if need be I I don't really understand that. Uh, FIFA also confirmed that only bids from the Asian Football Federation and the Oceania Football Confederation will be considered for the 2034 World Cup. Saudi Arabia have said that they plan to bid. Um, I'm very hopeful that Australia and New Zealand will get together and put in a bid which satisfies both because Australia play as part of the Asian Football Confederation. New Zealand are the dominant force in the Oceania. So doesn't that make a ton of sense as a bid, Australia and New Zealand? They already have the infrastructure. There's no issues with, with stadiums. They've got incredible stadiums in both countries. Between, if we consider Stadium Australia, whatever it's called now. Uh, Yeah, it is called Stadium Australia. Uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground could be used because they use it for rugby league. So it can be reorientated to a, a, a rectangle pitch. You've got the Perth Stadium, which is sensational. You've got the Adelaide Oval. You've got Dockland Stadium, Lang Park. Cusack Stadium in Brisbane. So you could have two in Brisbane. Uh, You've got the Sydney Cricket Ground, the Sydney Football Stadium. You've got the Brisbane Cricket Ground. These are all just stadiums that are over 40,000. Now, you're not going to put three in Brisbane, but you might put two. But they've got a bunch of stadiums in Australia that are absolutely ideal. I mean, the Melbourne Cricket Ground holds 88,000 people. Stadium Australia holds 83,500. The Perth Stadium, I believe, would hold about 70,000 for a football match. Uh, the Adelaide Oval holds about 54. Docklands holds 56. Lang Park holds 52,500. Cusack holds 48,500. Sydney Cricket Ground holds 48. Sydney Football Ground holds 45 so you know more than enough Um, and then in New Zealand you've got a bunch of really high end rugby stadiums that could absolutely be used you've got Eden Park which is a mecca you've got Sky Stadium uh, Foresight Bar Stadium in Dunedin you've got the Mount Smart Stadium in Auckland they're all over 30,000 so you could use Those four, maybe one other. Maybe you go to Hamilton and use the Waikato Stadium. And then you've got a bunch in Australia that would be perfect. I I think they could have the the best bid going in. You've got great cities there to host it as well. Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. If they wanted to... Use somewhere in the north. Maybe they could look at that as well. Um, what venues do we have in the north of Australia that would work? The Willow Sports Complex, 26,500. It's up in northern Queensland. Uh, the North Queensland Stadium itself, Twenty five thousand. There's a lot of stadiums in Australia. Because you've got a lot of sports. You've got rugby league, rugby union, AFL, football, and obviously cricket. Now some of the cricket grounds are not going to be usable. They could use they could use York Park in Tasmania if they wanted to, just you know, for a little bit of, of something different. Um there's nothing really standing out in the Northern Territory uh the marara oval i think it's the primary the primary stadium in the north in darwin it's only 14000 so we can rule that one out but still i mean it's 2034 you could build a stadium in that time even if it's one that's a temporary stadium although i, I don't really like that um i i i don't really I don't really have a major issue with this World Cup being held in, you know, the first three games being held in, in South America because it is important to pay homage to to that first World Cup, and it's a forty-eight team World Cup, so that's why we're now seeing the expansion to two and three countries. Um, but but I feel like they could have just held that World Cup in South America, held 2024, 2034 in Spain, Portugal, and Morocco, and then 2038 could have gone to Asia or Oceania. I, maybe that's just me. I, I just feel like it could have been done to hold it in, in South America to celebrate that tournament properly. But it is what it is. That's the decision that's been made. And as we know, those pockets have been lined because it's FIFA. Uh, Garrett Southgate has announced his latest England squad. Sam Johnston, Jordan Pickford and Aaron Ramsdale are the goalkeepers. No Nick Pope, who's been the best English goalkeeper for the last 18 months or so. Uh, defenders Levi Colwell who's had a bad start this the season Lewis Dunk who hasn't been all that impressive either Mark Gwehi Harry Maguire who's the fifth choice centre-back now at Manchester United behind Johnny Evans who's nearly 40 uh, John Stones who hasn't kicked a ball this season Fikayo Tomori, fair enough Kieran Trippier, fair enough Kyle Walker, fair enough and Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold who's actually been listed as a midfielder But what I note is that that is three right backs and no left backs in the squad. None. Not a single left back. There are no left backs good enough to play for Gareth Southgate. Is Ben Chilwell injured? Because I thought he was back. I know Shaw is out. Enrico Henry is out. But there are other left-backs. Chilwell. Oh, Chilwell is out for months. Oh, I didn't realise this. Chilwell is out until December. That's another big blow for Chelsea. And their injury situation is fairly hectic at the moment. They're going to be missing a lot of players this weekend. Uh, Borogia is out by the looks of it. Caicedo looks like he's out. Mudrick looks like he's out. Reese James is suspended at least. And Carney Chukwemeka is out. Plus, Mal Augusto suspended. Baddy Ashile injured. Um, I think Nicholas Jackson's back. He is back from suspension. Uh, Romeo Lavia's out. Chilwell's out. And Kunku's out. And Fafan is out. That's not great right for them. Um, but still, there's got to be a left back somewhere that you could have picked. Um, Maguire is a laughable pick and Stones hasn't kicked a ball this season. Midfielders, Jude Bellingham, Conor Gallagher, Jordan Henderson, Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice. Yeah. Uh, Fords, Jared Bowen, fair. Phil Foden, Absolutely. Jack Grealish, he hasn't played well this season. Harry Kane, yeah. James Madison, good to see him in the squad. Eddie Nketiah back in the squad, don't really understand that one. Marcus Rashford, Bikai Osaka, they're obvious ones. And Ollie Watkins, it's great to see him getting a call-up. Raheem Sterling left out again, though. I, I can't help but not. Um... I suppose, look, that's just what Gareth Southgate's going to do. He's leaving after the the Euros, and he's just going to continue to pick the same garbage that he's always picked. And if I was Harry Maguire and Jordan Henderson, I would be treasuring every single England camp that you get called up to, because next summer, your international careers are over, because no real manager is picking you to play. Um... Guillaume Balaga, who, as you know, is a self-promoting bullshitter, has actually written a decent piece for a change on the BBC website about Ansu Fati. That's worth reading. Sheffield Wednesday have sacked Cisco. Uh, they've made a winless start to life in the Championship. Obviously, Darren Moore came in, got them promoted from League One, and then left in the summer. And Cisco was appointed to replace him. Um, Cisco, not the first time he's uh, come in, in in a firefighting late appointment before a season kind of role. Same thing happened at Watford. But out he goes real quick. He lasted 12 games. He lasted 13 games in his last job. and was sacked in January from Anarthosis in Cyprus. So having failed in Cyprus, it was decided that he was the man to come in and take over in, uh, take over at Sheffield Wednesday. I'm wrong about his tenure at Watford. He took over mid-season is what he did. He took over mid-season. He took over in December and was fired in the October um, having gotten them promoted, which was actually a fantastic achievement he took over from Ivich had been appointed just before the season started. Cisco replaced him and then he himself got sacked um fantastic stuff fantastic stuff so we'll wait and see who who uh, Sheffield Wednesday go for next I'm sure. If Frank Lampard had any humility about him, he'd actually throw his hat in the ring, but he won't. But, you know, Sheffield Wednesday are another one of these clubs who are, I would say, badly owned. I think that's probably fair to say. Chancery hasn't really done uh, a whole lot of good since taking over. And their next manager will be their... Seventh, since Carlos Carvial left in December of 2017, uh, he left to take over at Swansea, didn't he? Yeah. He left to take over at Swansea. And he'd been there two and a half years. And in the six years since, this will be their seventh manager. uh, Jos Luake, who I don't remember, He was in charge for basically all of 2018, the calendar year. He got sacked. It took them six weeks to find a replacement. They hired Steve Bruce. Uh, He quit after five months in charge to take the Newcastle job. Gary Monk was appointed after a two-month managerial search during the summer. Gary Monk was appointed and he lasted just over a year before being sacked. Then came Tony Pulis. He lasted 10 games and got sacked. Then it took them three months, well, two and a half months to find their next manager, which was Darren Moore. He lasted uh, over two years and did very well getting them promoted by far their best manager in a long time. The best managerial win rate for not for a Sheffield Wednesday manager since Harry Catterick back in the late 50s, early 60s. Now, admittedly, it was in the lower leagues, League One, uh, whereas many of those who came before him were in the Premier League or at least the Championship. Uh, Cisco lasted from July to October. 12 games, Zero wins, eight draws and four defeats. Not ideal. Not ideal at all. Uh, Speaking of not ideal, Hitafe, the club who garnered controversy for signing Mason Greenwood on a season long loan, as United attempt to, you know, find a way to weasel him back into the team despite the fact that he did what he did. Uh, They have changed the name of their stadium. So the stadium was called Coliseum Alfonso Perez. It was built in 1998 and will now simply be known as Coliseum. Alfonso Perez, if you remember, was a very good striker back in the 90s for Real Betis. He'd come through the Real Madrid Academy, having spent one year as a 13-year-old in the Hitafe Academy, he joined Real, made his way into their first team, never quite established himself, but was a, a reliable squad player in that early 90s Real team. Went to Betis, was very good for them, earned a big money move to Barcelona, failed to, failed to do anything of note there, uh, got loaned to Marseille, ended up back at Betis, uh, 38 caps to the Spanish national team. Uh, So the stadium was named after him, despite the fact that he never played for them and was only there for one year as a 13-year-old. But he made some disparaging remarks in an interview recently about female footballers. And obviously those are well out of line. And then considering everything that's gone on in Spain with the women's national team over the last couple of months, uh, the decision had to be made to remove his name from the stadium which should never have been named after him to begin with. Um, Kieran Dyer has left hospital after a successful liver uh, transplant. He was diagnosed with primary scoliosing cholangitis, a chronic liver condition with no cure. Kieran Dyer was a very, very good player back in the day uh, who made some, made some mistakes, but uh, he is working now as a coach. Uh, I believe he's at Chesterfield. Yeah. He is first team coach at Chesterfield. And, um, hopefully, hopefully this, this liver transplant, uh, keeps him, keeps him going for a long time. um, Celebrity SAS. Oh wow, I didn't know this about Kieran Dyer. Uh, I'm not going to say it on the pod. You can read it on his Wikipedia page. Um, I didn't realise what had happened to him uh, during his childhood. Um, I'm fully team Kieran Dyer now. I hope. I hope uh, this this liver transplant takes and that he uh, makes as much of a recovery as he can and that his condition is kept um, as controlled and as medicated as, as he can and that he gets to live a, a full and fruitful life. Uh, on to the gossip then. Manchester City and Manchester United will compete for the signing of Caro Matoma in January. No, they won't. won't. Both Manchester clubs could miss out with Matoma set to sign a new long-term contract. That's exactly why they won't sign him. Eric Ten Hags future, I'm sorry, Hag's position as Manchester United manager is secure for the foreseeable future despite the club's poor start to the season. That is according to Jamie Jackson in The Guardian. Um, Pierre-Emile Heusberg wants to leave Tottenham if the club cannot guarantee him first-team football. You're the fourth-best midfielder there, so unfortunately they can't guarantee you anything. Chelsea want to sign New York Red Bull's 15-year-old American winger Julian Hall but face competition from United City, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich. Bayern are set to offer Alfonso Davies a new contract to fend off interest from City, Chelsea and Real Madrid. Um, Bayern winger Leroy Sané could leave the club next summer. Uh, Thomas Tuchel adores him, so I'm not really sure that's any kind of possibility. West Ham are among several clubs interested in signing uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. They don't actually have any need for him, but if Piquetta leaves, then that will open up a need for him. He could play left side with Kudus as the 10, Bowen right side, and that would be quite a formidable trio behind the striker. Fiorentina are set to offer Italy under-19 defender Michael Coyote a new contract with Arsenal showing interest. Chelsea are keeping a close eye on Andre Santos's situation at Nottingham Forest and could recall him from his loan spell if he does not secure regular first-team football, according to the Athletic. Um, he hasn't kicked a ball really for them, has he? Barcelona want to sign want to sign Santos and are monitoring his situation. Uh, Athletic Club's Nico Nico Williams is close to agreeing a new contract ending Brighton and Aston Villa's hopes of signing him. He's out of contract in the summer and I'd imagine I'd imagine if he does sign a new deal it will have an affordable buyout in it because otherwise there's no benefit to him in doing that He's doing the club a favour by signing a new deal. He's not going to stay there long term He's not going to be like his brother Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester United are among a host of Premier League clubs interested in Feyenoord's 22-year-old Dutch midfielder, Quinton Timber, who is the brother of Jurian Timber. Ivan Toney is considering leaving Brentford in January with Tottenham or Chelsea-likely destinations. I think Tottenham is perfect for him. Burnley are interested in Millwall's 18-year-old English under-19 midfielder, Romain Eze. Very, very talented. And that's it. That's all I've got for today. So I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. cast network